Welcome to the Sunday Service Podcast of First Universalist Church, a Unitarian Universalist congregation located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are a radically welcoming and progressive faith community deeply committed to love, justice, spiritual growth, and living out our values in the world. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. I have a story for us today. It was originally written by Carmen Agraditi. I've adapted it a little bit for Minnesota. Once there was a village where the streets rang with song. Dogs howled, parents crooned, engines hummed, birds chirped, and it seemed everyone had a song to sing. This made the village a very noisy place. It was hard to hear, hard to sleep. It was even hard to think. No one knew what to do about it, but they wanted someone to blame, so they fired the mayor. So now they were a noisy village with no mayor, so they had an election. The only candidate who promised peace and quiet Well, he won by a landslide. The next day, a polite law appeared in the village square. No loud singing in public, please. Things were getting better already. But then more laws followed, which were not quite so polite. No loud singing at home. And then, no loud singing. And finally, no singing. At this point, the noisy village was as silent as a tomb. Even the tea kettles were afraid to whistle, and this went on for seven very quiet years. Then, one evening, a plucky rooster and his family wandered into the village and roosted in a fragrant cedar tree. The little rooster did what roosters were born to do. He sang. First he cleared his throat, and then... Well, as his rotten luck would have it, the cedar tree grew right outside the cranky mayor's window. You there, groused the mayor, popping out his head. No singing. It's the law around here. Well, that's a silly law, laughed the rooster. Smell this sweet cedar. How can I keep from singing? Hmm. I'll chop down that stinky tree, huffed the mayor. Will you sing then? Well, the plucky rooster shrugged and said, I may sing a less cheerful song, but I will sing. And indeed, (coughs) he did. Oh, he doesn't want to sing. (laughs) Cock-a-doodle-doo. Still singing, snapped the mayor. 
I have no tree, said the rooster, but I do have my hen and my chicks. How can I keep from singing? Will you sing if I throw you in a cage alone, threatened the mayor. I may sing a lonelier song, said the stubborn rooster, but I will sing. So into the cage he went, but still he sang. Why are you singing now, growled the mayor. You're all alone. That makes me very sad, the rooster sighed. But I still have corn to eat. And if you have no corn, and the mayor snatched it right away, I may sing a hungrier song, said the headstrong rooster. But if the sun can still shine, despite the world's troubles, how can I keep from singing? What if you never see the, song, the sun again, said the mayor. And he ran for a blanket to cover the rooster's cage. I may sing a darker song, the rooster called after him, but I will sing. <laughs> now, as his song echoed down the soundless streets of the village, it stirred up an old familiar longing in the people for a time when everyone had had a song to sing. The people were very grateful to hear the rooster's song when they themselves were too scared to sing. The next day, the mayor marched out to the cage in his yard, and what do you think he heard? <laughs> exactly! A quiet crowd had started to gather around. Crowd around. <clears throat> the mayor tore away the blanket and he yelled, yelled at the rooster. You have no tree to roost in. You have no hens or chicks to keep you company. You have no grain to fill your belly. You have no sun to drive away the shadows. Why are you still singing? And the rooster answered. He said, I sing for those who cannot sing. How can I keep from singing? Well, this pushed it over the edge for the mayor. He exploded. He said, what about if I make you into a soup? Will you still sing then? Well, there was a murmur in the crowd. There was a stirring in the yard, which was overflowing at this point. And the rooster knew that the people were ready. He sang, I sing for those who cannot sing, and the townspeople repeated, I sing for those who cannot sing, how can I keep from singing? Then the rooster admitted, a rooster made into soup cannot sing, but a song is louder than one little rooster and stronger than one bully of a mare. This song will never die so long as there are people to sing it. So once again, there was a village where the streets rang with song. This made for a very noisy place to live, and that's just the way everyone liked it. My friends, 
there are always those who will resist being silenced, who will crow out their truth regardless of consequence. Foolhardy or wise, they are the ones who give us the courage to sing. So remember the words to this song. Let the words ring true. And please join me in singing hymn number 108. My name is Eric Ward, Executive Director of Western State Center. And I'm glad to have uh, the next time with you. I should warn you, I was raised Baptist. It usually takes me 15 minutes to introduce myself. But this morning, I'm going to be quite efficient. We're here to talk about surviving the wilderness. It has been a long three years. But if you talk to my father, he will tell you it's been a long 94 years. But whether it's three or 94, all of us feel the weariness of the moment, the weight of the moment. Interesting enough, right now, I got a chance to speak to a Jewish congregation on Friday evening. And right now where they are in the Torah readings is towards the end of the plagues. It is ironically at this point, as the last three worst plagues come, that the heart of the Pharaoh hardens. Realizing, even his, even his advisors realizing what is happening around him, he, few, he refuses to give people their liberation. I think often about the hardening of the heart and what does that mean as we enter a period of liberation. I always start by holding a mirror. It is easy to talk about the hardening of others' hearts, those in our national leadership, but it's often hard to look in that mirror and understand that the hardening of one heart hardens all hearts, including those of us who are committed to love, those of us who believe that our love will outlast hate. I came across a commentary given to me about 15 years ago by a friend of mine named David Elcott. And I, at the time, for about eight years, I thought it was a puzzle. I was like, what does this commentary mean? But I think it's key to understanding surviving the wilderness this morning. And where do we go? At a time of immense hate crimes in our society, where immigrants and refugees and Muslims are being persecuted in homes and communities around our society. At a time where the poor are even more neglected than they have ever been before. Is this wilderness or are we still under the hand of the Pharaoh? It's hard to understand when things change. 
You all may remember the story of Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks was a black woman who was tired one day. And on that one day she was tired, she refused to give up her seat on the bus. And all of a sudden, through osmosis, after she was arrested, everyone just knew to stay off the bus. Not for one day, but for an entire year. Really, it was one of the greatest miracles to ever take place. Not only did people just know to stay off the buses, they knew to give rides to each other back and forth. And then, almost approximately one year later, the Montgomery Bus Association just decided that segregation was wrong and ended it. And everyone lived happily ever after forever. <laughs> now we know while that may have been the way we were taught the story, that it's not how it played out. Rosa Parks was a longtime organizer and leader in her community. She was highly respected. She was the secretary of the NAACP. She worked on the assaults, understanding and helping women respond to sexual assaults in her community as an investigator for the NAACP. She and others had gathered in a place called Highlander in Tennessee, where they organized and strategized around how to end racial segregation and decided to target public transportation. Rosa Parks wasn't the first who was arrested. But what they knew was that if they continued to take steps, that eventually a moment would come when the community would say, it is time to move forward, time to take another step. Now, we often refer to this as the 1960s civil rights movement. But if you talk to historians, they will point out that the majority of civil rights milestones took place in the 1950s, including the arrest of Rosa Parks, Little Rock, Brown versus the Board of Education. And if you sit down with serious academics, who will approach me afterwards, <laughs> they will tell you and I that the civil rights movement actually started in the 1940s. Milestones are not actual beginnings and endings. They are merely guidepost along the path. It is hard to know when movements and moments begin. It is hard to know whether we are in the wilderness or under the hand of the Pharaoh. But we should always act as if we were moving through the wilderness. And how does one move through the wilderness towards liberation? Well, let me read you what my friend David Elcott gave me a long time ago. It's from Deuteronomy 
25:17. And it reads, "Remember what the Amalekites did to you on your way out of Egypt, who attacked you on the way and cut off all the stragglers who were left behind you, and you were weary and tired and not God-fearing." There is a commentary on this verse. It's from the 18th century. It comes from the Ituri Torah, which is a Hasidic commentary. And it goes on to explain this verse. It says, if the community of Israel had not forgotten these stragglers, but rather had brought them close under the wings of God's presence in order to return them underneath the clouds of glory so that they would be together, the Amalek would not have overcome them and beaten them. But because these stragglers were left behind and you forgot them, this is the real forgetting. The people of Israel were weary, tired, and not God-fearing and forgot these weakened brothers and sisters so that the Amalek were able to cut them off. Therefore, the commentary goes on. The Torah commands us to remember the Amalek and with this warned us never again to forget our brothers and sisters in need of support and help, keeping them safely within the camp. What does it mean to be part of a great forgetting? My father would say that part of being part of engaging in the great forgetting is to forget what we have accomplished. What those before us have done to get us to this point. I think often of the civil rights movement. I happened to be a fundraiser at the time for the movement for black lives several years ago. And one of the shirts that I loved that my friends would wear was one that said, not your mama's civil rights movement. Loved that shirt. And I used to tease my friends too. And I would say, you know what? We're actually not our mama's civil rights movement. Our mama's civil rights movement was bad ass. <laughs> what did I mean by that? It is certainly not to take away from this generation's struggles and from their leadership and how profoundly they have shaped the present world. What I meant by this is that we have forgotten the conditions upon which our parents and grandparents had to function under. They had to organize under de jure white supremacy. And what I mean by that is that white supremacy was the rule of law in this country. It wasn't contested. It was the air that people breathed. Law was decided under the basis of white supremacy. What is white supremacy? White supremacy is a historic and present day system of exploitation and discrimination. It was how our country was founded upon the three pillars of the genocide 
and stolen resources of native people, the captivity and free labor of blacks, and the third we often don't talk about, the control of sexuality, primarily misogyny and the control over women. This is how our society was organized and constructed. Now, I often tell people to take a big, deep breath right now because there's something else we need to remember. None of us in this room created that system. None of us are responsible for the creation of that system. But we are responsible for its present-day realities. But understanding its present-day realities means also understanding that this 1960s, or I'm sorry, this 1940s civil rights movement actually defeated white supremacy as the rule of law. Now, I'm not saying white supremacy doesn't exist anymore. What I'm saying is it is de facto. It is contested space. It is us moving away from the Pharaoh through the wilderness to the promised land. If we do not understand the victories we have had, how will we understand the victories that we need to achieve that are ahead of us? We are at an important moment in this society. We are at a time where the nation is debating who is an American and what will America look like. It is a debate that is taking place on the terrain of civil rights, national identity, and civil society. It is a debate that we are all familiar with on one side. Everyone in this room knows what it means when someone says, make America great again. All of us can visualize what that means. All of us can explain the consequences. But when we say inclusive democracy, racial justice, people-centered communities, all of us have different ideas about what that means. We don't have a unified narrative. Not having a unified narrative is dangerous in this moment. At a time where everyone else can visualize the alternative to that unified narrative. What has stopped us from building that unified narrative? I believe it is the hardening of our own hearts. It is the belief that we are absolutely right. It is the belief that subculture is more important than mass-based community engagement. It is the belief that there is no compromise, that each individual step is no longer worthy, that only the total liberation is acceptable. That is not liberation. It is nihilism. It is time for us to be community members and leaders again. 
the first step in that unified theory through the wilderness is this. It is understanding that everyone has the right to live, love, and work free from fear and bigotry. And that it doesn't matter whether you are a 78-year-old white male Republican in rural Iowa facing job discrimination or an 18-year-old trans-Latina woman facing that same job discrimination on the streets of New York City. It is time for us to be unapologetically allied with those who are vulnerable in our community. It is not about Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal. It is about those who seek to build authoritarian nationalism versus those of us who believe in inclusivity and democracy. It is time for us to stand up and to use our voices, to gather the most vulnerable under our wings, even if they don't look like the vulnerable we are used to. It is a serious time. When I was young, and I'm getting off the stage here soon, we used to play a game called If I Were. We didn't have a lot of money. We were 11 years old. And by the time August hit, we had nothing else to do. And so someone would always remember this game in August. And we played as kids sitting out in a circle, usually in front of the apartment building. And it would go like this. If I were in the midst of a zoo in a lion's cage and the lion got in, here's what I would do. And then we'd argue about what we would or wouldn't do to try to survive with that lion. Or if I were driving down the freeway at 80 and the brakes went out, here's what I would do. And we'd argue about it. The one question that always came up was, if I were in the midst of the civil rights movement, here is what I would do. And boy, we would argue about what we would or wouldn't do or put up with or not put up with. We were full of bravado. Again, we didn't understand the conditions that our parents and grandparents had lived under. We didn't understand their choiceless choices. That game has always haunted me, and that question in particular has always haunted me. What would I have done in the midst of the civil rights movement? Well, about 10 years ago, I realized I no longer had to wonder. And neither do any of you in the audience. The truth is, whatever it is we would have done in the midst of the civil rights movement is going to be whatever it is we do when we walk out these doors today. It is time for us to stand up for the most vulnerable and to be unapologetic. It is time for us to break this idea of a partisan silo. These aren't about politics. It's about values. And we need to be clear about what our values are. The third is we have to be willing to take step after step, understanding that there is no blueprint 
for how the future looks. If the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years, it was because they had to break with their past conditions and prepare themselves for what the promised land could be. This is our moment where we are wandering through the wilderness. The way we get out of the wilderness is by moving out of it together. It means no one can be left behind. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Eric Ward, and I'm executive director of Western State Center. And I'm so glad to be with you all this morning. It has been quite a long three years. But my father, who just turned 94, would say it's been a long 94 years. <laughs> I think about that when we reflect on surviving the wilderness. And what does it mean to survive in the wilderness? I've had a chance to spend some time with two Jewish congregations this weekend talking about anti-Semitism and the rise of white nationalism. And today we'll have a workshop for two hours where we talk about why anti-Semitism and addressing anti-Semitism in this moment is so critical. But I want to take a step back. That is a conversation for this afternoon. And I want to talk at a higher level about where we are in this moment. As a community, as a country, as a world. It can feel overwhelming. It can feel frightening. It can feel like chaos. Often I find myself wondering, where is the love? What happened to the idea of loving one's neighbor? I grew up Baptist. That's why I'm watching the clock. And as a kid, one of the verses that always stuck with me came out of 1 John. And it reads, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God. They that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Beloveds, let us love one another. The idea of love is powerful. We are taught that the opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. It's an interesting time because as I was meeting with these Jewish congregations, I realized that part of the readings in the Torah this week deal with the Pharaoh and the final plagues. It is the time 
before Israelites leave Egypt, slavery, and not entering the promised land as we thought. They wouldn't enter the promised land for another generation. But we're setting out to wander the wilderness. I think about the Pharaoh. I think about the plagues. And I think about what this means and how we should reflect on it. As you read the text, what you understand is as the plagues are happening and the people are suffering, the Pharaoh doesn't relent. In fact, the texts show that the Pharaoh hardened his heart despite what was happening to his nation, to his community. That his heart so hardened that he felt no compassion not only for the Israelites, but for his own people. That he was willing to sacrifice everyone to cling to power. We call that a sickness, indifference. What's more hard to accept is understanding that the Pharaoh was not alone. That the hardening of his heart hardened everyone's heart. When one is ill in a society, all of us become ill, even those of us committed to love. I reflect on what did it mean that the Pharaoh's heart hardened and what effect did that have on his society and on those who were fleeing his society. Then I came across something that a friend of mine shared many, many years ago. And it was a commentary from an 18th century Hasidic writer, and it's called the Aturi Torah. And when he gave it to me, I thought he was giving me a puzzle, quite frankly. I've always wondered, what did this mean? And I've never thrown it away. Here it is right here with my little notes scribbled. And it starts off with a reading of Deuteronomy. It says, remember what the Amalekites did to you on your way out of Egypt, who attacked you on the way and cut off all the stragglers who were left behind. And you were weary and tired and not God-fearing. Deuteronomy 25, 17. The commentary shares this reflection. It says of this verse, if the community of Israel had not forgotten these stragglers, but rather had brought them close under the wings of God's presence in order to return them underneath the clouds of glory so that they would be together, then Amalek would not have overcome them and beaten them. But because these stragglers were left behind and you forgot them, this is the real forgetting. The people of Israel were weary, tired, and not God-fearing and forgot these weakened brothers, sisters, and others so that the Amalek were able to cut them off. 
Therefore, the Torah commands us to remember Amalek. And with this, warned us never again to forget our brothers and sisters in need of support and help, keeping them safely within the camp. What this reflection tells us is that the great forgetting may be one of the biggest sins that we can commit. But what does it mean to greatly forget? For me right now, what it means is forgetting that as hearts harden, we have to be wary that our own hearts are not hardening. It means understanding that we too reach moments where we believe we were always born woke. When I was young, in my 20s, I was growing up in LA and Long Beach and I was in this band that went on to become known as Sublime after I left, of course. <laughs> and um, I had two friends who were moving up to Eugene, Oregon. And they were going there to go to school. And they asked three of us, stragglers, if you will, if we would move up to Eugene with them. We were close friends. And I remember looking my friends in the eye with the love friend has for another and saying to them, hell no. I'm not moving to Oregon. Now, if you could have opened up my head and looked in at the time, what you would have seen was San Francisco a lot of trees, and the Space Needle, which wasn't even in Oregon, but in Seattle. I can say now with some great embarrassment that I asked my friends things like, was there running water? <laughs> Did they have electricity? And as a 21-year-old, was there MTV and McDonald's? I eventually was courageous enough to wander that wilderness from Southern California to Eugene, Oregon. And what I found were way too many McDonald's, way too much MTV, and a new life. I could stand here today and say, when my friends asked me to go to Oregon, I just said, yes, I'm gonna do that, I'm very brave. That is the great forgetting. We are at a time where we have to understand that we should find no joy or righteousness in this moment. What is ahead is the idea of building, building hope, building trust, and building community. And it doesn't come from self-righteousness but from humility. I think of the story as the Israelites were reaching the sea 
And a young man named Nachum stepped forward. And commentary says the waters did not part until this young man, at a sign of faith, put his first toe into the water. The commentary goes on to say, has he crossed? And the Israelites crossed? They were chased by Egyptian soldiers. And as the Egyptians entered into the parting waters, the waters closed, drowning and crushing them. The commentary goes on to say that the angels rejoiced at the destruction of the enemies. And then God rebuked them, saying, how dare you celebrate the destruction of my creation? We are at a moment right now where those of us who believe in community, who believe in the right of everyone to live, love, and work free from fear and bigotry, where we need to let go of our own hardened hearts. The idea that people are not redeemable in our society because of their politics, because of their own hardened hearts. We are a community that is supposed to embrace the future, not draw rules around how people enter that future. What does it mean to wander the wilderness? I often reflect, are we in the wilderness or are we under the rule of Pharaoh? Then I think to myself, it doesn't matter because we should be acting in the same way regardless. We should be acting as if we are preparing the world for the promised land. I think of the last public speech by Martin Luther King, and many of you may know it. It's not the I have a dream, but it is the speech that contains the words where Martin Luther King is telling people he has been to the mountaintop, and he has looked over the valley and seen the promised land. And he tells the crowd that he may not get there with them, but he guarantees that as a people, we will see the promised land. I don't know what Martin Luther King saw, but I know it was something so powerful that he was willing to sacrifice his life for it. It is pretty clear in this speech that he knows his days are few. You can hear it in his voice and you can see it in his eyes. But his courageousness and dedication is also clear. I don't know what Martin Luther King saw, but I know I want to see it. And that means getting there to the promised land. But wandering the wilderness means not leaving anyone behind. We don't get out of the wilderness by leaving behind those whose hearts are hardened. Our job is to soften those hearts, understanding that it is not easy 
We weren't born in easy times. We were born in a time that will define this nation for generations to come. The main debate in this society is who is an American and what will America look like? When we hear, make America great again, I suspect everyone in this room can define what that means and what that looks like. But when we say the type of nation we want, is it so clear? Are we so unified? We worry much about the other side, the rise of white nationalism, the rise of Islamophobia. But the truth is, hate groups don't bring racism, Islamophobia, transphobia, homophobia, misogyny, and anti-Semitism to our communities. They simply organize the bigotry that already exists. If we are honest, if we are being real, when we say that we want a better world, we have to start by holding a mirror to ourselves. We have to start with humility, not arrogance. We can't pretend we were always woke. We cannot build subcultures. We cannot hide in silos. We have to open our doors and open our hearts and understand that opening our hearts means receiving pain. But that's what it means to keep stragglers under our wings. I promised I wouldn't go on forever. So I'm going to end here. We should remember that the great forgetting is forgetting that love conquers all and that no one is forgotten. Whether they are a 78-year-old white veteran living in rural Iowa facing job discrimination or an 18-year-old trans-Latina facing job discrimination in New York City, we are unapologetic for both of their liberation, the right to exist and to be. Whether we say black lives matters, never again, what we mean is room to breathe. So where do we go? Well, when I was a kid, we used to play a game called If I Were. We didn't have a lot of money. In fact, we had no money by the time August rolled around. And so as young kids, we would just sit out in front on the lawn. And If I Were would go like this. If I were in the lion's cage at the zoo and the lion got out, Here's what I would do. And as kids, we'd argue about what we would or wouldn't do. The question that would always come up was, if I were in the midst of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, here's what I would do. Now, we were kids. We didn't understand the choiceless choices of our parents. We didn't understand what it meant to grow up under white supremacy as the rule of law. Jim Crow segregation. 
So we had a lot of bravado about what we would or wouldn't do and about what we would and wouldn't put up with. It was a sign of how much things had changed. But that question has always haunted me. What would I have done in the midst of the civil rights movement? Well, around 10 years ago, I realized I no longer had to wonder. And neither does anyone else in this room. The truth is, whatever it is you would have done in the midst of the civil rights movement is likely what you are going to do when you walk out these doors today. Make what you do count. History will judge us in this moment. Stand up for the most vulnerable in our community. Leave no one behind, even if they are wearing red baseball caps with MAGA on it. And three, practice the promised land that you say you want. Be courageous, be stalwart, and be steadfast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, and together we give, receive, and grow in the universalist spirit of love and hope. To learn more about who we are and our ministry, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.